I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of King's College London and the Leverhulme Trust, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about philosophy and medicine in the Islamic world, with Peter E. Porman, who is Professor of Classics and Greco-Arabic Studies at the University of Manchester. Hi, Peter. Hi, Peter. Thanks for coming on. Perhaps we can start by talking about the sources of medicine in the Islamic world. Would it be fair to say that the situation is similar to philosophy and that the main sources are Greek? Uh, indeed, they are. So the two big authorities, the two names that are mentioned over and over again in the Islamic tradition are on the one hand Hippocrates and on the other Galen. But then there are some lesser known physicians such as uh, Rufus of Ephesus who dies re around the year 100. And then there is, um, for instance, Paul of Aegina, a 7th century physician who worked in Alexandria and presumably because of his name hailed from the island of Aegina, which is just opposite Athens or Py Piraeus. Uh, so, but generally speaking, uh, when it comes to uh, the medical tradition, humoral pathology, the idea that blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile, when in balance, create health, and when in imbalance, create disease. This humor pathology, this idea, basically uh, dominates the Islamic tradition. And that's a Greek idea which we first find in uh, the treatise on the nature of men by Hippocrates, which was then, then adopted, so that's the 5th century BC, and which was then adopted by Galen, the physician who lives roughly from 129 till 216 AD. And this physician Galen wrote a commentary on it, and he had, uh, adopted and adapted that uh, humor pathology. And that's the cornerstone of medicine as it developed in the Islamic world. And I suppose that most of the medical authors who are working in Arabic are at the mercy of the translators. I mean, not Hunan ibn Ishaq, who's one of the most important translators of medical works into Arabic, but most medical authors would have just had to work with the Arabic versions that were given to them by the yeah, translators. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, uh, it's not entirely correct for the ninth century. So we have um, somebody called At-Tabari, um, who uh, you know probably knew Syriac. There's somebody called Ibn Sarabian or Ibn Sarabiyun uh, in the late ninth century who writes in Syriac and then is translated into Arabic. So some people would have had a notion or a knowledge of Syriac because they're Christians, or some people would have a notion or some knowledge of uh, of Greek. Although for the vast majority and certainly the most important figures, that is true. So. The people of whom we know and whom we admire, kind of the uh, luminaries of the Arabic medical tradition, people like Arrazi, uh, Ibn Sina, Avicenna, and others, they totally relied on the translations. And even the Arabic technical terminology that's used in medical works is to some extent based on Greek technical terminology, just like in philosophy? Um, yes and no. So basically there were three... Um, procedures or three ways in which the Greek vocabulary was adapted and adopted. So the first is just to translate one term with another. So instance, the uh, concept of mixture, you know, krasis in Greek is very important. So how are the humors, these four humors, mixed? 
Uh, that's called misage in Arabic. That's uh, an Arabic term. Maybe be, has also a, a cognate in Syriac. But I mean, like it's a good Arabic word. So other terms um, then um, are translated as what we call calcs or loan translations. For instance, there's a, a disease called alopecia, alopecia. You know, the disease literally of the fox alopex, which is basically a loss of hair, which uh, you, Peter, might be familiar with. Uh, um, and now this uh, disease, alopecia, is then translated into Arabic as the uh, alab, so literally the disease of the fox. So alopecia, kind of the fox disease in Greek, becomes the disease of the fox in Arabic. That's a loan translation. And for this, obviously, the Greek word structure is important. And then uh, sometimes we have just transliteration. Take phrenitis, you know, a brain fever, a disease which is sometimes nowadays associated with meningitis. That is often just transliterated, pharanitis, and that's a procedure which also uh, occurs. But in all these three cases, whether it's just you know, like replacing a Greek word with an Arabic word, or finding a loan translation, or just transliterating the word, uh, the Greek concepts are important that are behind that. To what extent do you think we're being misled by the fact that mostly what we've got access to here is these very learned texts which are grounded in this translation movement? I mean, on the ground, was a lot of the medical care that people were actually receiving, was it actually influenced by Greek medicine, or is this more like yes. a literary tradition? Well, it is both. So, on the one hand, you have a massive translation movement in the ninth century about which you uh, talked in an earlier episode. And that obviously, so these translations, these texts are very important. But on the other hand, you have a tradition on the ground. Uh, so even in pre-Islamic and early Islamic poetry, you find certain Greek technical terms mentioned. Now that doesn't depend on a learned tradition. That's just because the Arabs lived in close contact you know, with the Greeks or with the Byzantines uh, and took certain ideas and concepts over from them. So it's not just one channel. You know, so the practice is important and the theory is important. But what did not happen is just that the text got translated and then all of a sudden some Arab author first reads them and then, you know, like kind of applies the principles. You know, like there is a tradition. There are physicians, for instance, uh, Christian physicians who practice medicine, who draw on these texts, you know, and who are then imitated. So one thing which is very important is the curriculum at Alexandria in late antiquity. That is more or less adopted wholesale uh, in, in Baghdad in the ninth century. So there's, on the one hand, transfer of knowledge, but on the other hand, then there is innovation and there are new ideas that um, stem from or that are built on this fundament, on this basis of, of Greek human pathology. That's actually the next thing I was going to ask you. What sorts of innovations or discoveries were made in the Arabic medical tradition? Well, there are numerous innovations and uh, that's first and foremost a very important uh, point. I'd just like to give you a few examples from different areas. Uh, um, so, for instance, the first anatomical illustrations of the muscles of the eye, which we have, occur in an Arab manuscript in Hunayn ibn Ishaq's text, the Ten Treatises on the Eye. So there you find the first illustration of, uh, you know, like an anatomical illustration. So, you know, 
perhaps they're Greek antecedents and we don't have them. But for us, as far as we know, this is the first manuscript where we see it. It's, by the way, um, uh, Cairo Tiptimor 100. So it's nowadays kept in Cairo in the National Library there. So that's one thing, you know, illustration, anatomy. Um, another thing is the discovery of new diseases or the differentiation between diseases about which people did not know beforehand. Uh, so Honain ibn Ishaq, that uh, translator and physician who dies in the 870s, for instance, um, describes in his work on eye diseases uh, a condition called PANUS nowadays, P-A-N-N-U-S, uh, um, sabal in Arabic, uh, and it's basically an overgrowth over the eye. And uh, this is a condition which was not known or which we do not find in Greek sources and which for the first time is described in this text. So new diseases are discovered. Or Ar-Razi, Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria Ar-Razi, who dies in 925 roughly, um, um, distinguishes between smallpox and measles for the first time, uh, a distinction not made in earlier Greek sources. So, you know, new diseases are described, but also new ter therapies are found. So, obviously, the Greek recipes, uh, you know, like uh, are very important, Galen and Dioscorides, an author who lived in the first century AD. You mean drug recipes for medicines? Medicines, yeah. yes. So, um, so again, Dioscorides in the in the first century AD and Galen in the second century AD uh, write on simple drugs, write work on simple drugs, and Galen also on compound drugs. So many, many recipes, a lot of information how individual. Uh, medical substances, the so-called simples work, you know, and that is translated into, uh, but it's not just, uh, people just take the recipe and don't do anything with it, so the recipes are further developed, it's like a cook who can't you know <laughs> who, who can't um, refuse the temptation to innovate when he sees a recipe similarly, you know, like a lot of uh, recipes are altered and also a lot of drugs come in from the east for the first time um, the last innovation which I'd like to mention is the uh, hospital. Um, obviously, there were Byzantine hospitals, but uh, when we come to the Arabic or Islamic world in the 9th and 10th century, um, these institutions are much more sophisticated. Uh, they have teaching, they have uh, research, uh, they are secure in law, they have elite medicine practice there, so the best physicians practice in hospitals. And some of them at least are you know, like uh, um, not confessional, so Christian Jews and Muslims equally practice there as physicians and come there as patients. So also on the social level, there's a lot of innovation. Right, so the next time one of us is in hospital, then we should give thanks to the Arabic medical tradition. Well, I mean, you could say that some of these uh, innovations foreshadow modern developments, but it's always difficult. Uh, one should always resist the temptation to find um, the present in the past. So Well said. Uh, nice <laughs> aphorism to go along with Hippocrates' aphorisms. Of course, yes. Uh, one disease you've worked on quite a bit is a disease that was recognized in the ancient tradition, but the understanding of it was developed further in the Arabic tradition, and this is melancholy. 
Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I think it's philosophically interesting. Yes, so melancholy is a disease um, which has different ma- manifestations. And melancholy, or the word, the Greek word melaina chole, from which melancholy is derived, actually means black bile. So melancholy is the disease of the black bile. And there are different types of uh, this disease. Uh, um, and the Greek physician, who's really the most influential for the subsequent uh, tradition, is Rufus of Ephesus, whom I mentioned earlier. Uh, who lived around the year 100 AD, and he wrote a treatise on melancholy, and he distinguishes, for instance, between innate melancholy and acquired melancholy. So some people are just melancholic by character or by disposition. They have too much black bile, and they have certain tendencies, and some people uh, acquire it. And um, the disease manifests in different ways. I mean, nowadays when we say somebody's melancholic, it just means, you know, he has the blues, you know, so he's <laughs> sad or whatever. But melancholy in those days was really a form of madness so you have delusions so for instance some people thought they are made of parchment and they're um, you know like um, they're so dry that the, you know if somebody touches them they're brittle other thought they were made of porcelain and they could be you know crushed and crumble other people thought uh, that they um, that atlas who holds the world on his arms uh, could get tired and then the the sky would fall or the world would crumble and they were afraid of that there's a famous case uh, of an astronomer who, who who thought that some thought they were cocks you know like uh, basically chicken and uh, uh, cried like chicken and uh, flapped their wings like chicken. <laughs> so some became aggressive and would attack people. Other became despondent. Many people died from this disease. So it's a huge, um, a huge uh, spectrum of uh, symptoms uh, which come under melancholy, which is kind of a kind of madness, and it is caused by an excess of black bile, and there are various ways, and I won't go into all the details. But melancholy is interesting because it really poses the question, how does my bodily constitution influence my mental capacities? So... Right, which is obviously a, a matter of great importance to philosophers as well as to doctors. Yes. And that brings us to someone you've mentioned who actually I talked about on the last episode of the podcast, who is Razi. Yes. And he was both a doctor and a philosopher. And I, I would say is unusual in that we have quite a lot of medical writings of his, some philosophical writings. So along with Avicenna, he's a, a thinker for whom we have both sides represented. To what extent would you say that his medical output is in tension with his philosophical output? Well, I mean, uh, let's take, for instance, uh, the topic of sexual intercourse. You know, obviously we all want to stay healthy and uh, we all want to stay happy or happiness is a philosophical goal, whereas health is a medical goal. In uh, some of his philosophical works, for instance, um, you know, his uh, philosophical way of life. Uh, you know, Arazi advocates that sex is bad for you. And under no circumstances should you engage in or seek sexual pleasure. And obviously, he stands in a long philosophical tradition. I mean, even Epicureans were wary of sex. Um, but certainly the Stoics were and others were too. They just said, you know, like, don't seek the pleasures of the flesh. 
because they are transient and they might go away or they might last only for a short period of time or they might give you grief. You know, try to find pleasure in things which are longer lasting. So this is a position which has become nearly commonplace by late antiquity and which Arrazi adopts in his philosophical works. But when it comes to medicine, and he writes a number of uh, manuals, I mean, he writes two manuals on sexual intercourse, um, he has a more nuanced position. And he says, for some people, sex is actually good and it can have medical benefits. For instance, in order to combat melancholy, you know, sex and entertainment uh, to, um, and wine, drinking wine in moderation are, are things that are advocated in order to overcome melancholy and he recognizes that and uh, so his philosophical position is very strict and his medical position is very uh, nuanced and uh, I always thought there's this wonderful phrase where he says for some people sexual intercourse is actually beneficial. I always thought that he was thinking of himself as being in that category but of Of course, I'm speculating. I wouldn't be surprised. No, I mean, <laughs> another area where I think his medical output is interesting philosophically is what he has to say about methodology. And in general, I suppose that one of the more obvious places to look for philosophically interesting aspects of medicine in Greek, in Latin, and in Arabic is when they start talking about how doctors go about discovering new remedies, identifying diseases, and so on. Yes. What does Razi have to say about that? Oh, a very, very interesting uh, figure in that, uh, that area. So obviously you're right in saying that nowadays we still debate how can we discover drugs. You know, now we have double-blind tr trials and we have a huge, uh, you know, um, literature and a lot of thought is going into the question, how do we know that a drug works? I mean, think of the placebo effect, you know, how can we exclude that and so on and so forth. Obviously, what happens in, in the 9th and 10th century or what happens with Arrazi is not quite as sophisticated. But there's a fundamental debate about how to arrive at uh, the right treatment already in Greek times. Galen writes on the sects for beginners. Galen, again, in the 2nd century AD. This is a different kind of sects. So this sects. S-E-C-T-S. <laughs> sects, not on sex for beginners, on the sects <laughs> for beginners. And uh, lest I pronounce this incorrectly. And uh, he um, says that there are basically two important sects. There's a third one, the Methodists, but they don't need to concern us here. They're the empiricists who say, let's do what works, you know. If we see that a drug works, we don't have to ask why or what the inner bodily functions are. It's too complicated. We will never be able to ascertain that. So let's do what works. And then there are the rationalists, and they say, okay, let's think about how the body works, the humors, for instance, and other things. And then, because we understand how the body works, we will be able to to find the right treatment. Now, this is a debate of which Arazi was aware and to which he contributes. Um, so he obviously knows about empiricists and um, rationalists, and he, like Galen, adopts a middle ground. He says, you know, um, empiricism alone certainly will not help us, but nor would just book learning without you know, using uh, other principles uh, help us. So he occupies a middle ground like Galen. And um, there are uh, things in which he's very innovative. For, for instance, uh, um, when talking about phrenitis, brain fever mentioned earlier during, uh, when, when I talked about translations, um, 
when dealing with this condition, he said that once he tried to bleed, to phlebotomize, uh, so like so to bleed one group of patients, and they did not contract the disease, and then he left another group of patients deliberately and did not bleed them. So we have the notion of a control group, which uh, we really find for the first time in Arrazi. Obviously, they're not randomized controlled trials as we have them nowadays, but that's a quite a sophisticated way of doing things. Uh, um, at another time, he talks about statistics. He talks about large cohorts of patients. So um, in different ways, so to speak, he finds uh, means to, he finds ways to refine that, um, that theory uh, about medical epistemology, which he, in, he inherits from the Greeks, and there too he innovates. One thing that makes clear these kinds of examples is that Razi was really a medical practitioner. He saw lots of patients, oh God, yes. he worked in hospitals. And looking ahead to another philosopher who I haven't covered yet, Buddha, I think we should discuss because he's so important in the history of Islamic medicine, this is Avicenna. Some people have thought that Avicenna, unlike Razi, wasn't particularly involved with medical practice, but really was more of a book learning figure in the history of medicine, very important <laughs> as a transmitter of ideas about medicine, but maybe not someone who actually had a lot of hands-on practice with patients. To what extent do you think that that is true? Um, well, I mean, Avicenna Ibn Sina was first and foremost a philosopher um, and a great intellect. But uh, I don't think, I don't believe in these either-or scenarios, you know, like just because he was mainly a you know, like, so let's say his canon of medicine is mainly, you know, like a book in which he condenses previous Greek and Arabic medical theory and arranges it very intelligently. So that's for me also an area of innovation, you know, like the arrangement of knowledge uh, um, by division, by the principle of division in a very, uh, very interesting way. Um, but that doesn't preclude that he had some medical experience. So there are some 30 times in, in his canon where he says, you know, I tried this or I, you know, he confirmed this by experience or whatever. Um, and there are like some uh, stories uh, in various sources in his biography, but also in a later text uh, uh, talking about his life, which confirmed that he was a practicing physician. And um, I don't think that we have any, I mean, that there's any doubt that he practiced some medicine. You know, it probably wasn't what he did most of the time, but he certainly had a practical experience. Now, in his autobiography, he boasts that at the age of 16, he had already meant, mastered all of uh, medicine. It was a very easy subject and so on and so forth. That is uh, rhetoric and that's a philosophical stance and there's external evidence which shows that he actually learned from other um, uh, earlier physicians later in life. So I think, I personally think, and I have argued this uh, in print in one of your forthcoming books, uh, that Avicenna is both a great theoretician but also has practiced medicine, there's no doubt about it. So actually maybe we could even say that he's sort of the reverse of Razi. Razi is basically a doctor but also does some philosophy. Avicenna is basically a philosopher but also does some medical practice. Well, I think you say this because most of Arazi's philosophical writings are lost. Uh, mm. um, I mean, it is true to a certain extent, but uh, Arazi was uh, labeled a zindiq, 
an apostate or you know like an unbeliever and the later tradition wasn't very kind to his philosophical writings so i think if we had more we would appreciate his philosophy more but generally speaking i think that's that's right while we're on the topic of avicenna i wanted to come back to something you mentioned earlier which is that in this tradition it's common to think about psychological states as being somehow dependent on states of the body and one area where this arises is that avicenna associates various psychological faculties things like imagination sure. and so on with organs of the body and in mm. particular the brain so mm. could you say a little bit about that uh, well i mean avicenna has this theory of the five inner senses uh, so each uh, sense you know in outside sense like sight to each outside faculty of sensation that corresponds in you know, like a, something in the brain um, um, and uh, it is situated in the brain and uh, um, it's a difficult topic because um, again in his medical work and his philosophical works he, f he formulates that theory slightly differently um, but what is clear is that he situates these faculties uh, inside the brain and so the, uh, he tries to come to some understanding of how the, I mean how the interface so to speak between the soul or the mental faculties and the physical faculties of sensation work and I think uh, that uh, um, his, uh, his take on this is actually uh, quite a bit of a departure from what happened before because like the common sense for instance is already found in Aristotle but uh, what he makes of it uh, and the way he describes it is uh, and how he links it to the five the five outer senses to the five inner senses is innovative but that's probably something you know more about <laughs> than I do so you and should and uh, actually really maybe I'll talk this, about uh, it more when I get to Avicenna and I'm talking about his psychology um, before we end I just wanted to give you a chance to say more generally where is the state of research into this whole field? I mean, is it in its infancy, or is there a lot still to be done well, researching Islamic medicine? Well, we stand on the shoulders of giants, of course, so the generation of my teachers have uh, produced uh, wonderful and brilliant work. I mean, I can mention Manfred Ullmann, Emily Savage-Smith, uh, Remke Kröck, and others. Uh, um, but in my generation, we are very few and uh, you know like i'm in my early 40s now and uh, um, there's not uh, well i shouldn't say this maybe he looks younger <laughs> but in any case but uh, you know, like uh, there are fairly few people i mean if you think of a major figure like avicenna you know his uh, canon of medicine is full of interesting philosophical things uh, um, his medicine uh, you know like he's the most important the most influential medical author and he's there are very few studies uh, done by people who work with the Arabic sources and do something, you know, kind of who are trained in the history of medicine. So the state is really on some level uh, in its infancy, and we certainly need more people to move into it. Okay, well, if anyone out there in the audience is tempted, then they can give Professor Foreman a call. Um, for now, I'll just thank him very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Peter. And uh, please join me next time when I'll start to look at philosophy in the 10th century in the context of the Baghdad School of Aristotelian Philosophers, next time on the history of philosophy without any gaps. Hey.